What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Microsoft becomes the second member of the super-exclusive $2 trillion club. Will it fare better than Apple after hitting this milestone? And can it stay out of the D.C. spotlight? We'll ask. Plus, when everyone else zigs, you should zag. It's a lesson in life, Dom. One strategist says following the crowd into growth in tech is a mistake, and he will break down why. And the retail stock that could rally 50%, Alcoa's Revenge, and Warby Parker is now eyeing a direct listing. We'll get to it all, but we'll start with the markets this afternoon. Dom Chu here with those numbers. All right, so Kelly, I'm trying to figure out if I should zig or zag right now, but I've got a limited amount of real estate here. So I'm just going to go with what's happening in the markets right now because there's zigging and zagging, and it's playing out netting to a fairly flat market near record highs. I will put that yellow star, gold star, next to the NASDAQ because we did hit a record not long after the opening bell today. So the NASDAQ, you're outperforming today, just up one-tenth of one percent. Still, though, the Dow just about flat on the day and the S&P 500 hanging just around that 42.50 level when we're watching. You mentioned growth versus value, where you should go, zig versus zag. Well, check out some of the more growth-oriented ETFs that track certain parts of the market. The Vanguard Growth ETF, tracking some of those larger cap names on a year-to-day basis, up about 11.5%. The gains today are moderating somewhat now. The First Trust Dow Jones Internet ETF, many of those FANG names as part of that particular index, off about, or up about 13% here. And the ARK Innovation ETF, still down 1%, but on a year-to-day basis, look at that. We've seen a bit of a comeback, a move higher here in just the last couple of months for some growth-oriented stocks. We'll watch that. And then... The stocks that we want to focus on today have something to do overall with that bounce back that we're seeing in cryptocurrencies. Whether or not it lasts remains to be seen. However, after larger losses over the last few weeks here, Coinbase catching a bid today up 2%. MicroStrategy, they hold Bitcoin as part of their balance sheet, up about 5%. And then Square and Riot Blockchain, some of the names in that ecosystem as well for cryptocurrencies. In the green today, again, that big debate right now about whether or not that buy was good for Bitcoin after it went below 30,000. We'll see if this lasts. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. Well, first it was Apple. Now Microsoft is joining the $2 trillion club as it hits an all-time high. Five companies, Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook make up nearly a quarter of the S&P 500's market cap right now, even though tech has been somewhat of a laggard in market performance this year. While most of the big tech names have been under ferocious regulatory pressure, Microsoft has flown under the radar this time around, at least after its ascent from those earlier uh, antitrust issues that it had. But can it stay that way? Here to discuss what's ahead for Microsoft now, Dan Gallagher is a reporter and heard on the street columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And Dan Ives is managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. Welcome to both of you. Um, Dan Ives, let me just start with, with a comment from you sort of on Apple's performance after it crossed the $2 trillion mark. This was last August. It suddenly had expanded its P.E. in a way that Apple previously was not known for. And I think since then, on a split-adjusted basis, Apple is up maybe five bucks, maybe seven. Is there a risk here with Microsoft that the same kind of trading uplift could happen and be a a hangover for the stock for a while? 
Yeah, it's a great point, but I think it's different here with Microsoft because there's no regulatory overhang. And right now for Apple, that's about $20 overhang in terms of from a regulatory as well as the epic lawsuit battle. And it comes down to cloud. I mean, it's really right now, this is the best way to play cloud with Microsoft, still a third of the way through the sort of cloud transformational upgrade cycle. I think trillion-dollar opportunity just on cloud alone over the coming years. That's why I view Microsoft, 325 is our price target. I think this is just sort of the middle innings of re-rating, but also it's all cloud growth and talents that we're seeing yeah. in the digital transformation. One more question, uh, Dan, I've, since you mentioned it, I am, I'm just curious. Why do you say that Apple has a $20 overhang from regulatory issues? How do you get to that number? Yeah, that's our view right now in, in terms of it. It's a little more than a 10% overhang on Apple. You know, I think worries on the App Store, what that could do. What you know, If you look what's coming down the pike in terms of the Beltway in Brussels, and I do think the Epic lawsuit in particular, that's really shined the spotlight. Remember, we go back six months ago. Apple was tangential in antitrust. Now, definitely in the crosshairs. And I think right now that's a pretty significant overhang, $20 per share. Sure. All right, Dan Gallagher, let me turn to you then. Do you see any kind of regulatory overhang here for Microsoft? Because it just rarely, it's interesting how being forced kind of or or without being able to help itself, it fell out of the whole mobile phone revolution. It's actually benefiting from that because now it's not in any regulatory crosshairs or e-commerce ones. No one seems to care what it's doing in the cloud. Uh, I think that's true for the moment. Um, you know, I think part of what I uh, wrote a couple months ago was that, um, you know, with with nearing two trillion dollars then and the incredible success they've had over the last uh, several years, moving to the cloud um, and some of their other improvements like margins and that, um, I do think this raises the stakes for them um, in the sense of you know they have to keep putting up really strong numbers to keep the keep the stock going up, and I think. Uh, some moves they've been making lately run the risk of putting of getting them back in the crosshairs. Possibly, Such I really as. saw that last year when they flirted with going going after TikTok. Um, you know, in this in this really controversial deal that looked like a forced sale from you know with involving uh, the president at the time, and I think that would have brought them a lot of social network baggage um, and and those sorts of uh, and, and those sorts of like overhangs. Um, that didn't that didn't happen. I think that was actually good for them. You know, but as as they've been more vocal about uh, trying to get more regulatory pressure on their competitors like Google, um, and speaking out outwards about that, um, I do think they've run some risk now of like making people pay more attention to them. So, Dan Gallagher, here's one more question on this issue. You know, one of their biggest competitors in the cloud, which is the core business, obviously, is Amazon. Amazon, everybody loves to beat up on Amazon. Every state, every you know, political regulator, you know, consumers. I mean, you name it, right? But if Amazon is held back from its further ambitions and scale in the cloud or forced to divest its businesses somehow, is that going to play right into Microsoft's hands? Uh, that's certainly possible. Um, I think right now a lot of eyeballs are on Amazon on their consumer side, um, you know, with, with bills about uh, potentially they should, they should break up, separate the third party from the retail arm. Um, and this, this deal to buy MGM is probably going to get a lot more focus. Um, I think those are easier things to draw political pressure because people understand those names really well. Whereas I think the cloud is still in this field where a lot of um, you know uh, you know politicians, leaders, and that don't fully have their arms around that. Mm -hmm. So I think if Amazon is constrained in some way, that that could help Microsoft. But Amazon also, I think you know I think they'll use a lot of their um, spotlight to say, hey, pay attention to these 
right. to our neighbors in Seattle because you know they they were they were once a major problem too. And if you let it go, it could be another one. So I, I think. I got I think we'll see a lot more tit for tat between the two companies because of that. And Dan Ives, I'll, I'll finally turn to you again. Just observe that both of you seem to see relatively clear sailing ahead for Microsoft at this point. Um, could Microsoft then become the most valuable company in the world? I mean, if if two trillion dollars is not a ceiling, and and if your price target's accurate, just how big are we talking? Yeah, I think right now, I mean, you go out next few years, that this could be a three trillion dollar market cap. We talk about Apple reaching it first. But I think Dan brings up a great point. Nadella and Redmond, they're going to be on the offensive right now in terms of M&A, in terms of cloud, while there's that battle going on in the Bellway. I think that's just another feather in their cap when it comes to this cloud arms race. All right. The Dans, thank you both today. Dan Ives and Dan Gallier on this key milestone that Microsoft has reached. Speaking of tech, it's been a bit of a bounce back lately, and growth stocks in general continue to rally after the Fed moved up its timeline on rate hikes. Growth jumped 2.5% in the past week. Value fell by 1%. Tech stocks up more than 2%, while financials are down almost 3%. All of that said, my next guest says, don't follow this herd. He's sticking with value in the banks. And joining me now is David Katz. He's the chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, welcome. You know, it's always easy to say, you know, don't follow the crowd. You should zig when they zag. But is this a a issue about herd and momentum or are, let's call them growth investors, onto the secular performance that this whole sector has enjoyed because it simply has a stronger earnings potential? I mean, Microsoft being a case in point. No, we would look at the last week as a outlier and really look at the last act, the action over the last five or six months. So coming out of recessions, typically value significantly outpaces growth. Since last September, value has done exceptionally well versus growth. We still think we're in the early innings of that. So you're getting a breather now. You're getting a pullback. We think this is going to be the pause that refreshes. And we think on a six to 12 month basis, that value still has some very good upside opportunities. We think the same trends that were in place three months ago, low interest rates, an improving economy, manageable inflation are still in place. We think ultimately rates will drift higher, but not to the extent that should derail value. And we think one of the things that you mentioned there was financials. Financials had a great run. They've just given back about three to seven percent, certain of the larger banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that is a great opportunity to get involved now because we think they're going to benefit from a rising rate environment. And you might get some good news in the next day or two out of the Fed in terms of uh, their capitalization. Sure. But what if rates don't drift higher? I mean, that's been the biggest surprise of the past week, even the past few months. And what does that mean for the financials? Well, in terms of the financials, they've got so many other things going for them that even if rates stay relatively low, they're still making a great deal of money. An improving economy means ultimately there's going to be more lending. And it also means that they're loan portfolio, their bad debt expense is going to go down significantly. So we think they're in a good place. And we do think that they're going to be allowed to raise their dividends and buy stock back. So uh, when rates rise, that's just going to be the icing on the cake. But we do think you want to put it in perspective. The economy is booming right now. You're going to see better trends in terms of the labor markets uh, come September, October. Uh, Taken all together, we think ultimately Uh, The Fed is going to be raising rates. What they said last week was that they're probably going to be raising rates sooner than people expected. We think over the next six to 12 months, uh, they're probably going to move that date forward a little bit more. It doesn't mean it's going to derail the economy, 
but it is out there. No, I know people are paying attention to comments from Atlanta Fed President Bostic about this uh, this afternoon as well. So you have some stocks in particular, not necessarily recommending sector or ETF-based performance here. BNY Mellon, Truist Financial. Um, outside of the financials, you do like Viacom, Verizon, and Merck. Why stock picking? Well, we think all of those fall into the value school. The market right now is at about 22 or 23 times earnings. The stocks that we just listed there are selling under 12 times earnings, paying anywhere from a 2 to 4% dividend. And interestingly, they have very good prospects over the next 6 to 12 months in terms of their business. So good business, great price. Let's take Bank of New York, for example. They uh, benefit significantly by any sort of rise in rates. If and when the Fed does raise rates, and we know it'll happen at some point, they have hundreds of millions of dollars that they're not getting on their money market business. They'll fall right into the bottom line, and you're paying 12 times earnings for it. So it's a question of when, not if, mm. and you're getting it at a very good price. It's, it's selling around its tangible book value. Rarely do you get a good financial institution at that sort of price. All right. David, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You too. David Katz with Matrix Asset Advisors. Coming up, there's a new ETF on the street today. Activist firm Engine Number 1 launching its ESG-focused Transform 500 fund. It's under the ticker vote. There you can see the half percent gain. This is not your run-of-the-mill ETF. What makes it different and why it could raise some red flags? That's next. Plus, the tradition of watching a hit TV show with all of your friends and the whole public might have already vanished leaving many wondering what it means for the future of television and for culture writ large. We'll explore all of this ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Engine number one, the activist firm that shocked the world by winning 3X on mobile board seats. Well, they're launching an ETF today. And rather than buying shares in ESG-focused companies, their Transform 500 ETF, the ticker vote, they're seeking to round up enough votes to enact change at their target companies. In order to do that, they need help from large shareholders like BlackRock, Vanguard, or State Street. And that could raise fresh questions about the influence those shareholders have over corporate America. Here to discuss, are joining me now are Lazard Managing Director Dennis Berman and and CNBC's own Bob Bassani. It's great to have you both here. Bob, just set this up for us, uh, because it does seem, as you point out, that many of their companies are well-known names in corporate America. They're big companies. They're definitely going to need big institutional backing in order to affect any change here. Yeah, it, this is a very unusual situation. It's sort of a, a perfect intersection of three hot investment 
themes, ETFs, ESGs, and activist investing. Essentially, this company, it's a very unusual ETF. They're not really an ETF in the traditional sense that they go out and take positions in companies that they have strong feelings about or or mixed with their investment ideologies. They're a lobbying organization that's going to go out and try to influence other big shareholders like Vanguard and BlackRock and Straight Street to go along with their essentially climate change ESG agenda. There's, There's nothing wrong with that, but they're going to get a lot of push back from people who already believe that some of the index fund managers have a little too much power. Some of the active investors don't like the index guys, but now people are going to get concerned about too much influence in terms of shareholder votes by these big corporate uh, index companies that are out there. And they're going to start saying, hey, wait a minute, now it's getting political. Now we're getting ESG and climate change involved with these fund managers. And I think you're going to see some pushback on that. Dennis, we might see pushback from the broader public, but I don't expect these institutions to push back on engine number one's ESG initiatives. I mean, they go with the flow, don't you think? It seems obvious to me that a firm like BlackRock, for instance, is never going to say, no, we're not going to vote with you on this. I think there's no way. I mean, they're all they're trying to outdo each other in achieving ESG goals. Well, well, look, I, I can't opine on any, on any individual product. I will give you some context of the activism world over the last 10 years. And, and, and Bob is as aware of this as, as anyone, I'm sure. But th- there's been a, a uh, coexistence between small activist funds, small activist players, and the largest big asset managers who, who want to bring change, whether it's in the compensation realm, whether it's in the environmental realm or governance realm, and in, in many cases, there's what we call, you know, the request for activism, where a large player, this is this is an active fund more than a passive fund, Bob, uh, is calling up a, a small activist and saying, hey, can you do something here? So to me, uh, you know, putting everything into context, this is uh, probably just part of that 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 uh, bigger coexistence between the, the small activists and the, and the smaller, uh, sure. sorry, and the larger institutions. And Bob, I think to the point you're making, that this is how a very small company achieves very large influence. It's because they do it under the umbrella of ESG. And so it's hard for the big institutions to say, we're not going to go with you. And if they do go with them, because like you said, some of these goals are political, you might get some public pushback, right? So if, if some of the public turns to these three major companies and says, well, wait a minute, your values don't reflect mine, doesn't my vote count? It could raise all over again the issue of whether the people voting on these uh, issues are the shareholders themselves and not the index funds that manage the money for them. Well, there has been proposals made that we should give all of the shareholding rights back to the actual individuals rather than to the funds themselves. That's a real mess. I'm not sure that's going to uh, ever happen. I don't think arguably it should happen. But here's what's amazing. This was a very academic discussion. Wait a minute. Index fund providers have too much proxy voting power. This was a purely academic discussion. Nobody cared about it until engine number one won the Exxon fight. And they won it, as you pointed out, by getting Vanguard and getting everybody else, State Street and BlackRock, to go along with them. Now, all of a sudden, we've realized you can actually leverage that because, as Dennis said, this is the moment for climate change, for investor activism. That's that perfect intersection I was talking about. And so the moment has come. The, the problem now is that the index providers are now in the crosshairs of a political fight about climate change. Remember, 
Republicans, for example, are pushing back again the SEC about climate change. They've already told Gary Gensler, we don't think that this is part of the SEC's mandate right. for you to go out and start polling corporate America on what they're doing uh, on greenhouse g uh, gas emissions, which Gensler has brought up this morning in his speech. So there is a real political crosswinds here yeah. uh, in what seems like an innocuous you know, corporate uh, development. And Dennis, maybe this is how the backlash happens. It, the one way that these index providers could lose power is if uh, ordinary investors, to what Bob's, to the point Bob's making, say, you don't reflect my values. I'm going to go to a different index provider that is at least neutral or maybe advances my agenda. Could we ever see something like that happen? Or is the whole industry too mature? And will these guys find a way to keep the politics out of it? Uh, well, look, uh, th there's been such a change conceptually for the, for the large index providers across the world, for that matter, Kelly, uh, that are putting ESG into their investment products. And, and you can see a flow of 10, hundreds of billions of dollars into ESG inflected uh, funds, particularly in Europe, but certainly uh, increasingly so in the U.S. So there may well be um, opportunities to invest in a non-ESG fund, right? You can buy a, a plain vanilla uh, S&P 500 fund today. But uh, overall, I'd say the arc of history is moving towards more ESG inclusion in terms of the, the selection criteria, Kelly. So um, there may well be kind of a, a reaction to that, but I think over time it's really going to be more uh, towards ESG rather than a weak. Well, and this may be polarizing the issue or kind of bringing that at least uh, into view as to whether there will be um, more proliferation of different index products as these agendas advance. Bob right. and Dennis, thank you both. Appreciate it, guys. Bob Bassani, okay. Dennis Berman on Engine Number One's ETF. Again, it launched today. It's up about half a percent at last check. Coming up, Morgan Stanley thinks it's found diamond, making this stock its new top pick in the metals and mining space. Shares of this mystery stock are up 50% so far this year, and Morgan Stanley says they can go another 50% higher from here. We'll tell you the name and why. As we head to break, a reminder that June is Pride Month. All month long, CNBC is spotlighting contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and producers. Here is NGLCC co-founder and president, Justin Nelson. As an LGBTQ American that grew up in the great state of Wyoming, it wasn't always easy. But I have to say that um, being LGBTQ has helped me where I am today. It's affected not only me, but the organization that I helped found and the people that we serve every day. So you might not know it right this minute, but it is absolutely something that you need to be proud of and lean into. And I thank God for it every single day. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get over to Julia Borson for a market flash on the social media names. Julia. Well, Kelly, Snapchairs are up about three and a half percent this after the Supreme Court ruled that a message sent by a teen on Snapchat to over 200 people was covered by the First Amendment, which did not allow schools to punish students for for speech outside of school grounds. Now, this all comes as social stocks 
are up today. Twitter is up more than 3% and about 8% for the week. It is on pace for its best month since February. As is Pinterest, that stock is up about 2% today. Facebook shares, though, they're up only about half a percent, but that could be related to those antitrust bills that are getting marked up today by the House Judiciary Committee. Those antitrust bills would be unlikely to affect the other social stocks, though, of course, Facebook would feel an impact there, Kelly. Yeah, no, it's an interesting Supreme Court ruling there. Julia, thanks for bringing that to us. Julia Borston. Over to Rahel Solomon now for our news update this hour. Rahel? Hey, Kelly, we're actually have more on that Supreme Court ruling in just a moment. But first, Vice President Kamala Harris will visit the U.S.-Mexico border Friday on a trip to El Paso, Texas. Republicans have been very critical of her for not going earlier as she works to reduce the number of Central Americans trying to enter the U.S. And as Julia just mentioned there, in a major free speech decision, the Supreme Court ruled 8-1 to one today that public schools generally can't punish students for what they say off campus. It's a win for Pennsylvania high school cheerleader Brandy Levy. She was suspended from the junior varsity team after repeatedly using a word that school officials found objectionable. This was during a social media post after she didn't make the varsity squad. Supreme Court also struck down part of a California law that emerged from Cesar Chavez's efforts in the 1970s to unionize farm workers. The 6-3 decision allows farm owners to keep union organizers off their property. And tonight on the news, the latest on a court hearing later today where we might hear singer Britney Spears personally ask a judge to have her father removed as conservator of her finances. And Kelly, still lots of attention on that case after that documentary with The New York Times. Yeah, and on the legal uh, system in general today. Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Under Armour, marketing mavens, big gains for heavy metal, and sweet spectacles and startups. We're going to look at three big names readying to go public. That and more is all coming up in today's Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And joining me to break down these headlines, Leslie Picker, Mike Santoli, and our special guest, Nancy Tangler, Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome, everybody. All right, let's begin with some recent weakness in the stock of Under Armour, which Cowan says is not going to last long, so buy in now. Uh, They're basically just adding UAA to their best ideas list for small and mid caps, saying the new marketing strategy should pay off big in the back half, despite shares being down 7% in the past three months. They put a $31 price target on it. It's 50% upside. In fact, Under Armour is doing pretty nicely this year. It's up 22% while Nike is down 6%, Michael. But you zoom it out five years, Under Armour is still down. Hang on, let me check. It was just taking a look. Over a five-year basis, it's down 50%. Yeah, and the bull case for Under Armour really from day one was, you know, it can grow really fast without even cutting into in a huge way Nike's market share. So having a huge incumbent competitor out there with a premium valued stock uh, always seemed like the story. I do wonder if it's the right time of whether it's the kind of athletic apparel cycle right now. I mean, have we not passed the peak for when that's going to be enjoying the top market share? Also, Under Armour's never been a cheap stock. It continues not to be a cheap stock. You look at the price targets implied by this target. It still looks pretty rich even a couple years out if things uh, if things go right. Nancy, uh, Under Armour, Nike, who'd you rather or, or neither? Uh, well, we, we don't know neither, so I should say that. But I do think Under Armour looks interesting here. Uh, I, I agree with Mike's points to, up to a point. Um, in terms of a relative price to sales ratio, which is how I think you want to look at this stock, it's pretty attractive based on its history. And I do think people need to get back to the gym, even if they don't want to. So I'm hopeful that, that the company will be able to raise guidance 
uh, or match the race guidance and then grow into their multiple. Wait a minute, Nancy, to be clear, because so many people have been working out at home. They're on their Pelotons. They're living in, you know, shorts and athleisure all the time. You think the reopening could still be a tailwind for fitness gear because people might actually go back to the gym? Yeah, well, I think some people, I mean, I was on a flight recently and I was reading the Wall Street Journal and they said they're having to allow for heavier passengers. And I had noticed the same thing. I think a lot of people um, need to re-engage in, in exercise. And so I, I do think that's a potential tailwind for the company. Politely put, Leslie, a quick final word here. Yeah, I would say that I might be one of those people. I went to a gym for the first time last week. So, uh, you know, I've been working out at home still wearing workout clothes, but, you know, I can see the the bull case there. Uh, but to her point, it could be possible, and this is what Cohen believes, that management undershot their North American guidance, just 5% sales growth. Oh, interesting. Another one of those little games. Either way, we'll keep an eye on the stocks whose performance lately has been a reversal of what we've seen for the previous few years. And let's talk about some of the big names that are preparing to go public. New filings show Krispy Kreme is going back into the public markets, looking to raise up to $640 million through a NASDAQ IPO that was announced earlier this month. Warby Parker just filed confidentially to go public via direct listing pending an SEC review. It's been another record year for IPOs. It's only June, but we've seen $171 billion so far, which is above the record set last year. Uh, Leslie, I mean, there's, there, each one of these feels like a different story. I want to talk to Mike about Krispy Kreme so we can go down memory lane <laughs> there. Um, so let me ask you about Warby Parker and the uh, the direct listing option, which people were wondering if had fallen out of favor somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I think it's company dependent. And a lot of these consumer names, because they already have the brand recognition, people know who they are, what they are, if they don't need additional capital, although now that's not now approved by the NYSC um, and the SEC in order to do that, if they so choose. Uh, it's a potential option. It's not for everybody, for, but for consumer names, uh, it could make sense. Michael, Krispy Kreme is one that raises the ire of guys like Herb Greenberg because he says, wait, wait, wait a minute. This was kind of an emblematic of the dot-com boom and bust name. Then it was private. Now it's going public again. So someone like that looks at the IPO and goes, that's all I need to know that this market is, you know, it's frothy. I, I don't want to get involved with it. Well, you can't say that without knowing how it's going to trade, because the reason Krispy Kreme became an emblem of a little bit of that irrational exuberance back in the late 90s was what happened to the stock after it came public. It became a cult thing. All the IPOs were doubling and tripling of every sort at that time. I also remember having to dial back when Krispy Kreme came public in 99 to the early 90s when you had Boston Chicken was a moonshot IPO, <laughs> and it was a, a little bit of a buzzy uh, restaurant chain, casual restaurant chain. Also, back then, Krispy Cream was a regional cult brand that was going to be going national. Now it's kind of built out. It's kind of, you know what you're getting with this one here. My bigger question here, JAB, family money, uh, private uh, money backing this uh, kind of roll-up of coffee-related chains. Now they're taking it public. I thought they were kind of a buy it and hold it for, for forever yes. kind of, a, of an investor. That's a great point. too. Nancy, any color you want to add here? And what do you make of some of the offerings that are coming to market now? Well, I mean, I think the Renaissance IPO index is, is well below the, the S&P year to date. So that's worth noting, even though, you know, we're up 350 percent in terms of IPOs year over year. I was on the set of Squawk as a guest host when Krispy Kreme came public and was uh, forced to eat one on television. <laughs> forced? Uh, it was it was epic. 
Um, but I, I am not really interested in, in continuing that at this point in my life. I think the Warby Parker uh, IPO is more interesting. Our good friend Brian Belsky gets all of his glasses there, and we know what a trendsetter he is. But I, I do like that company, and I do like the name. Okay. All right. Well, that said, Leslie, I just want to circle back on this JAB point that Michael raised. Could this be them testing the waters for additional IPOs? Oh, absolutely. At the valuation that Krispy Kreme is seeking, they'd be making 3x their money at the high end of the range. So this would be an enormously successful uh, turnaround in, oh, just about six years or so. So, you know, when you put that into perspective of a company that or a firm that's not really in the business of of flipping companies and not really their kind of M.O., uh, it could be you know, we could potentially see more. Panera is one that's been floated out there, yeah. given that they recently raised additional money um, as another IPO to look for, potentially. Yeah, I mean, speaking of well-known names, JB seems to hold pretty much all of them. A lot of, uh, I would say, household favorites, but, you know, a fast casual and that sort of thing. So all the more reason to watch how this one goes. All right, let's move along, switch gears, talk about Morgan Stanley seeing momentum ahead still for the many metal and mining stocks. They just named Alcoa the top pick in the space, saying they're best positioned to navigate volatility in the industrial sector after cleaning up the balance sheet, and they should benefit from growing demand for aluminum. They also see opportunity in China's green energy push, thanks to Alcoa's market share there. They're outperform, uh, maintaining their outperform and their $50 price target. Nancy, Alcoa's at 35 I love this story because it was kicked out of the Dow. Uh, is this Alcoa's revenge, and is it an EV play to some extent? Well, I, I do think it is. Um, however, I also think you have to have a lot of faith that the Chinese are going to uh, deliver on their green energy objectives. I'm a little too cynical for that. So um, I would rather own Freeport McMoran in here, though I'm happy to see uh, an upgrade and, and interest in the metals because we're long and we think uh, the narrative has a long way to go. You do. What inning? You know, I, I do love that analogy because it's so useful. And we, we talked to Goldman, which right before the Fed decision last week, Nancy, Jeff Curry told us he's a secular bull on a bunch of the metals, including copper. He says that's the new oil because it's a key input into this kind of electrification story. Right. It's four, it's four times uh, the amount of copper goes into electric vehicle than, than a combustible engine. I, I mean, I think we're probably in the fourth inning. The dollar derailed uh, the, the recent rally. We got a pullback. I think that was an opportunity for us. We went in and bought some more um, palladium and some of the copper plays. But it, the narrative is supportive of a super cycle uh, just from the standpoint of fundamentals, not not safe haven. So we still like uh, the story and we continue to commit assets. OK, Michael, what would you add about Alcoa? Well, what's fascinating is all of the bull cases on commodities rely on this supply constraint. We just have not built up capacity. The China story is related to that. Uh, and that probably can can take us a fair distance here. I would point out Alcoa was like an $80 stock 14 years ago. Right, if you remember that prior kind of emerging markets commodities boom. So in theory, and now it's a different company now, but in theory, there's, uh, there's kind of upside if people believe there's any sustainability to the cycle. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to watch these narratives change in real time. You know, that something that stuck to them for five and all of a sudden, you know, they get a new story and some new <laughs> life to them. Uh, it's fun yeah. to watch. All right, let's move along. Uh, before we go here, America's self-proclaimed oldest self-driving truck software company, got all that, is embarking on a SPAC merger. It's called Embark Trucks, and it's combining with sustainability-focused Northern Genesis Acquisition Corp, ticker NGAB, and a deal that will value the startup around $5 billion. Embark faces stiff competition, including from rival Plus AI that just agreed to a deal with Amazon. They say their technology sets them apart since they can work with many types of trucks and integrate easily with existing fleets. Leslie, which part of this deal most catches your attention? 
Uh, the fact that they were founded in 2016 and they claim that they are the oldest self-driving truck software firm, uh, that doesn't seem that old. Uh, but that just go speaks to the heart of a lot of these companies that are getting acquired by SPACs. They're not that old. They're in very early stages of their growth cycle. Uh, and here you go. They get a $5.2 billion valuation to be taken public this way. Now, uh, it's interesting. We do see waves of this. We've lately seen a lot of these self-driving car technology companies go public via SPACs. Of course, there was the whole EV wave last year. Uh, we'll see how this one plays out. Uh, you know, I can't comment on the actual competition in the space, um, but these kind of pre-revenue or early stage companies uh, do tend to see their fair share of volatility. Right. Yeah. yeah no, well said, uh, for sure. Sort of a tread, <laughs> tread carefully kind of warning there. Um, but Mike, there's two names that I think of when I think of this story, Uber and Tesla. Uber in particular, because right. the stock has gone nowhere since the IPO and a big part of the story for achieving profitability while still maintaining affordable rides was self-driving. And as that thesis yeah. fell apart, the stock has struggled. Everyone's complaining about the rides now and the cost of them, and they're facing a driver shortage. So sort of an unfortunate collision of events there. If they could get this software right, it could fundamentally change the story for Uber. And of course, it's a key part of the bull story for Tesla. Yes, and maybe it's still a stretch to say that we're going to get to that point for uh, Uber-type rides where it's much more idiosyncratic. And I think one of the interesting things about Embark is that it is right now limited to longer-haul trucking uh, routes. It, they already have relationships with the carriers and the, and the truck makers. Also, it's combining software as a service with autonomous driving with trucking, which are like three of the sexiest themes in Wall Street right now. And, and I think that's one of the reasons there's interest here, as opposed to kind of the pie in the sky, we're all going to actually have robot cars on all of our roads very soon kind of story. Nancy, given those sort of sexy themes that Mike described, is Embark an attractive investment to you? Do we not know yet? Or are there other better ways to play those themes if you want to play them? Kelly, I think you named the two best ways to play that theme right now. Uh, I think we're a long ways away. I mean, I used to commute on, Bay on BART in San Francisco. It was a driverless system that had a driver for safety reasons. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't have any vision, but I, I think we're away, away from long haul trucking uh, with driverless trucks. Yeah. So even if they're the leader in this uh, category, you think we still have a long ways to go before it's ready for prime time. I, have, I do. I, I have to admit I agree with you. Uh, it feels like it's been that way for years as well. All right, we'll leave it there, everybody, and we'll let people who are proponents uh, make their cases on Twitter. Leslie Picker, Mike Santoli, and Nancy Tangler, thank you all for a great version of Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, must-see TV is dead. Long live must-see TV. We're going to take a deep dive into how streaming has transformed television. But first, the great state tax giveaway. You heard it right. Some states are returning surplus tax revenue back to their residents. We have all those details next. Welcome back. It sounds like a headline from an alternate universe, but it's not. Uh, more than a dozen states are sending billions of dollars back to taxpayers as they deal with extra revenue. Robert Frank is here with the details and the debate it's ignited, Robert. Yeah, Kelly, alternate universe is a great phrase for this, because remember, a year ago, New Jersey was looking at a $10 billion deficit. Now, it has a $10 billion surplus. Now, to spend all that money, the state's going to start sending $500 checks next week. That's to households earning $150,000 or less. And it's giving property tax release and bigger child tax credits to certain families. A total of 29 states took in more revenue during the pandemic than before it. 
and more than a dozen now have surpluses that they are returning. They're sending rebate checks, they're cutting taxes, they're boosting spending. Colorado has a $3 billion surplus and will send checks of up to $120 to eligible families. Idaho just passed a $400 million tax cut and they're boosting their infrastructure spend. Minnesota is planning a $1 billion in tax cuts. North Carolina considering teacher bonuses of up to $300 per teacher. But it is California that wins on the surplus race here at over $75 billion for California's surplus. It is sending out rebate rebate checks of up to $1,100 per household. It is spending $5 billion to pay all the overdue rent for middle and low-income renters. And it is forgiving certain traffic fines. So now if you got caught speeding during COVID, you don't have to pay. Kelly? I don't know where to begin, but my main question, Robert, is how did this happen? Why, how did we end up with extra money? Where did the money come from? If it came from taxpayers, of course, you know, it should be given back, although I'm sure states with big pension deficits, maybe there's some, something else that, that it could be used for. But how do we get here? Well, they are, some of the states are giving it to fund their pensions, but how we got here are really two sources. One is all that federal stimulus. You know, New York alone is getting $12 billion that it can spend however it wants to, California even more, and income tax collections from the wealthy thanks in large part to the booming stock market. So it was the capital gains from this booming stock market, high incomes, and the federal stimulus, and now, of course, arguments of whether we should be spending even more given how the states are doing. Right. I mean, if they're already had, it does seem a little circular that taxpayer money writ large is going to states who are then returning it to their taxpayers. I, I, if that's a big piece of this, it would seem to defy logic. But states like Colorado, is that a different story? I mean, like you said, is this just a matter of, you know, uh, asset prices have done well, even housing prices, uh, perhaps there's a, a revenue source there. And, and is this going to be sustainable or is this just an odd quirk that it is only going to be the case just this year because of the pandemic? That is the big risk, because if these states and a lot of them are building this extra money into their spending programs and it's not sustainable, we were not going to get all this pandemic relief next year or the year after, then we could face some real budget constraints in a year or two, even if state economies are doing well, because the factors that help these states in the past year are just not going to happen at the same levels going forward. So that is going to be the big risk. And the big question going forward is, Will we have a shortfall in 2022 and 2023? Fascinating. What a mess. Robert, thanks so much. Robert Frank. Still ahead, according to Industry Insiders, the era of must-see TV is at an end. We'll explore not only how streaming has killed the hit TV show, but is also reshaping common culture after this. Welcome back. It's hit TV as we know it dead. The streaming wars have fragmented the entertainment space so much that the classic TV show as a cultural phenomenon is a relic of the past. Or so says my next guest. The Nielsen data seem to agree as the top five most watched TV episodes of all time all occurred way back in the 20th century. For more, I'm joined by Steven Zeitschik. He's business of entertainment writer at The Washington Post. It's great to have you here. And I don't think this is just TV either. If you look at the music uh, landscape, it tells you what are the cultural implications of this, Stephen? Yeah, there's an incredible fragmentation going on, and you hit it right on the head. It's going well across TV and to all sorts of other uh, entertainment media, and I think the implications are, are huge. I mean, 
you know, it wasn't that long ago back in the 90s when we can all talk about a Seinfeld or a Friends or 10, 15 years ago, we could all talk about an American Idol. Gosh, two, three years ago, we were all talking about Game of Thrones. That's not happening anymore. I think that's leading to a lot of fracturing and, and frankly reflects the divisions we see elsewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, as we think through all of this from like an industry or an investor point of view, you also wonder where the money is to be made, right? I mean, the valuation of Netflix and all these streaming platforms is so ginormous, even they're somehow capturing the public eyeballs, even if they're very fragmented through, uh, through all these different shows. Yeah. And I'm glad you bring up Netflix because and, and their valuation, because the fact that uh, this is happening, I don't think is unrelated uh, to how successful Netflix has been and why why the street so believes in them. Uh, Netflix doesn't need a big, broad hit. They don't need a friend's. Uh, you know, to gather 30 million people. They certainly would like to have some of those shows. But what they really want and what uh, Ted Sarandos and other executives there talk about is, you know, get everybody's favorite show. Even if everyone in your house is watching something different, you'll still subscribe. In fact, they're more likely to subscribe. So I think this fragmentation is very much directly connected to these streaming companies. Uh, They don't want, they don't need. In fact, sometimes they prefer not to have one big broad hit. They prefer to have five small ones. What are the implications for advertising if Netflix doesn't even show ads? Yeah, the, the Madison Avenue side of it has been really interesting. I mean, you know, we're still seeing a lot of spending. We're, we saw spending uh, the upfronts just last month for the broadcast networks. We're seeing it across the board, but we're seeing it precisely because the audiences are shrinking. You know, advertisers are so desperate now to reach, uh, you know, this this sort of ever, you know, narrowing audience that Super Bowl ads and, and the few things that are kind of capturing us on a wide scale are going for record prices. So I think advertisers will still spend, but the idea of being able to hit everyone as you say, in, in one fell swoop, uh, just doesn't exist because a lot of these services don't even carry it. And I wonder how much longer sports uh, will will even be able to do that. I mean, it just feels like it's a vestige of a of a time that's passed. And I'm, I'm not sure that, that people really care anymore. I mean, there is this whole kind of culture built around it, but you can just see it kind of getting chipped away at year after year and yet still delivering so much value. I just want to share an article, a uh, quote from your piece from Robert Thompson, who we've had on this program from Syracuse University, where he says, decades ago, you could disagree with someone on virtually everything and still both sing the theme song to Gilligan's Island. Uh, That common ground is gone. You know, I know you're not a political commentator, so to speak, but do you think there's going to end up being some kind of societal need for these transcendent shows or some kind of cultural touch point that can bring everybody together? I do. And I think uh, Thompson makes a great point when he says that we don't have that. And what does that mean for us on a sociological and political level? The problem is, as we've been talking about, is economically and financially, the incentives aren't there to do that. Uh, It's much more advantageous not to do that. And so I think where that leaves us politically and culturally is culturally, unfortunately, is not in a very good place. We have the Olympics around the corner, and that's usually one of the biggest events, you know, of the decade as well. So for those things that can still bring eyeballs, at least relatively speaking, is that where all the advertising money is going in kind of the old TV world? Or is Netflix the exception to the rule, which is that a lot of these streaming platforms are going to end up packing in just as much ad load as the product that we were used to 10 years ago? It's a very good question. And HBO Max, as uh, some viewers may know, uh, just added an ad-supported option. Other services have the same. I don't think Netflix is heading there anytime soon. But I think there may be some need to try to do that. But I still think even with these ads, uh, things are just going to get very targeted and very customized. You mentioned the Olympics. You know, yes, it does bring together a broad audience for, you know, maybe something like the opening ceremonies or a very big gymnastics or or swimming performance. But a lot of this stuff, as, as NBC has been talking about, uh, will be watchable on Peacock, you know, hours later, bundled in different ways. So yeah. in the Olympics, if we're all watching it, we're not watching the same thing. We're not watching it at the same time. 
it's a very different world. It's so true. Stephen, it's been a pleasure having you on to describe all this. Thank you, Stephen Zajcik of The Washington Post. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.